thank you guys so much for taking the time to uh, chat today about a really exciting show, Little Fires Everywhere, which is on Hulu. I went into watching this show not knowing anything about it except starring Carrie Washington, Lexi Underwood, um, Reese Witherspoon, Joshua Jackson, like a, a really incredible cast. Today, I'm really excited to talk with uh, two of the folks from the sound team, recording mixer Mark Fishman and Mark Riellier, who is the supervising sound editor. Thank you guys both for uh, chatting today. Yeah, thanks for having us. When you guys found out about this show, what did you know about the source material? When did you first find out about this project? Well, Mark read the book, right? You read the book. After, yeah. after I retired, yes, I read the book. I've been floating around uh, for most of the group for a while. And um, I just heard about it and it sounded like a really interesting project. So I kind of, I read the book and, um, you know, there's some, there's some kind of major differences between the book, but it's very, very, very close to it. So, um, and it was really the first time that Mark and I got to work together, uh, which was really exciting for me because we've been working in the same facilities for years, but had never had a chance to get to work together. So, yeah, I don't know. I got on it. Uh, I just got hired on it and uh, kind of started right away because they had had a, uh they were trying to get Wiley Stateman to do it and he wasn't available. So there was kind of a lot of trying to get him on and then, you know, he wasn't available. So uh, I kind of got hired on at the last minute, kind of, sort of. So, um, so then I just kind of started, jumped right into it and, and there, there we go. <laughs> you guys started um, earlier this year around January, but I guess what was your understanding of production? How did production kind of align with your guys' process and, how did you guys collaborate? Because I, when I look at the executive team, the executive producers on this project, from uh, it's it's an incredible roster of talent. I can imagine there must have was there early collaboration, or, or how how did you guys manage between production and, and your guys's post? Uh, well, for me, um, it was interesting. This they were super. I mean, they're they're incredibly incredibly smart ladies that were our producers. They're just amazing amazing people. Really really good at their jobs. Um, but they were also super, super busy, like prepping the other shows because they're very, very hands on, which I love. Um, but the only thing that was different for me is because they didn't have a lot of time, I had to, we didn't have spotting sessions. First time I've ever had not had spotting sessions. So basically they just said, here you go, make it great, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, we'll either like it or we'll hate it. <laughs> so I was like, okay, that's not a lot of pressure. So kind of jumped right in and um, uh, did what I could to get their attention, just to check certain things. Um, and, um, but they were great. I mean, they were very, very cool. Once I got going and they started to see, you know, what we were doing in editorial, they, they start, you know, they were very like, okay, you got this, you know, just keep keep moving forward you're doing great that kind of thing so um so there wasn't a lot of communication between them and me at the start really until we got on the mixing stage where we actually had access to them because you know other than that we didn't really have a lot of access so and everything was kind of relayed through our post producer mandy price fortunately we both mark and i have good teams so uh it wasn't too much of a stretch to get to get things where they needed to be but it was great. It was a great. It was a great show to collaborate on. Everyone was really collaborative. Mark, how, how did you and, and Jason Dots, the other re-recording mixer, how did you guys break up the episodes? Did you split, or what was the role division? Well, we actually split. I actually, um, we also collaborated with Anoui Blank, who had just finished Game of Thrones. So um, Anoui and I did episode one together. I kind of started it. She came in, finished. When the music got finished, she ended up doing episodes two, three, and four. And then I did five through eight. So I did music and dialogue on those. And then Jason 
uh, mixed sound effects, sound design, and backgrounds and everything for all eight episodes. So um, I think we ended up, forgive me if I forget, Mark, but I think it was four days uh, an episode to mix, and then we would do a playback on the fifth day. And we would usually just kind of go through, do our pass, um, usually, um, we had great, great composers on the show. We had Mark Isham and his summers as a really interesting collaborative team, but they, you know, um, as is very typical nowadays, we were kind of getting the final music into this, you know, maybe the middle of the second day or the third day. So we would kind of take a pass, go through everything and just, I would do four or five scenes of dialogue, put the music in, Jason would kind of, we just kind of go back and forth and do it that way. That was kind of the way we split it. And then we'd play back for Mandy, who was really, um, Mandy Price, who was really our kind of chief collaborator. And we'd kind of really make sure we'd get it into shape um, between, you know, Annalie and Jason or me and Jason before we'd show it back to the uh, showrunners and the producers. Right into episode one, it sets the tone. You know, the series starts, the story starts August 97. And you're quickly thrown into like this soundtrack of, of of that time period. You have a track from Michael Fronte. There's a Counting Crows song, and uh, it kind of thre- and it ends with I guess this Marcy's Playground cover, "Sex and Candy." So, how much of that w- were you guys aware of in terms of just all the music cues, and how did what were you delivered? Because a lot of these covers are beautiful renditions of these like familiar songs from the '90s time period. Yeah, usually um, just on most of the original songs, so the Counting Crows stuff or all that, we were usually just delivered a stereo master from the music supervisors. Um, and Sharon Gersh, who I have to mention also, is an amazing music editor. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything for us. But for the the new quote-unquote covers, I believe those were done with Isabella and the, whatever artists they picked out. And so they had given on the score side of things, I had had, I think, over 20 five, one splits on just the score. And I would get usually the same thing for the song. So I had a full orchestral, all those covers were actually a lot more orchestrated and studio done. So we really, I mean, you hear them, they're really nice and big and lush. And, um, it was, I mean, it was just such a joy to work on those covers are, um, they're all just amazing. I don't think any of them, we just were given a stereo mix. So, uh, mm-hmm. they really wrapped in the production was fantastic. And something you guys mentioned, which I, um, which is that this f- series was a native Dolby Atmos mix. So is that indicative because of Hulu? And I know obviously Mark Fishman, you just uh, we'd spoken earlier this year about your work on Carnival Row, another Dolby Atmos um, show. So for both you guys, what does that mean uh, for your deliverables, and how does that kind of lend itself to stuff? You know, we talk about the music and all the other components you're working. Knowing that it's going to be native Dolby Atmos, how does that how does that get introduced into your work? Yeah, I mean, we didn't in that, for, for prepping for Atmos. We didn't really do too much uh, for the prep, um, other than we might get might have given an extra LFE track, or um, um, you know, just kind of kept things that we thought would be in surrounds, you know, on separate tracks or whatever. But you actually, Jason for the effects side, pretty much did. He pretty much did all the panning and moved things around the way he wanted, and 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 uh, did it that way. So I'm not quite sure what he did on the mix side, but um, yeah, that's kind of how we in in our editorial process. That's how we kind of logically split everything across. We kind of keep kept things, 
you know, that we thought would be in surrounds on their own tracks so that he would find them easier. But I know, I know he was amazing. Like, and, and we had these, a lot of those fire scenes. He, uh, he was able to go in and actually put, you know, put a little fire over there, a little fire over there, a little fire up there. You know, he just kind of spread it out the way he thought it should be, which was great. Uh, and we didn't really prep for that. He, uh, he kind of just took, took the lead on that and just made it, you know, uh, made it, made it his once we, once we delivered the stuff to him. So, uh, yeah, so far as prep, it was, you know, pretty much, you know, what, I, you know, what I and the uh, sound effects editor, uh, Daisuke Sawa, uh, what he thought should be on certain spots. But Jason really just took the lead on it and was like, ah, I'll put this there too. I'll put that there, there too. And, you know, and then we just ended up with these like amazing, like Atmosian, uh, uh, sound, uh, soundscapes. So, uh, yeah. That's pretty much all there was to it. This was my first Atmos show, so I, this was a total learning experience for me because you know I, I uh, you know, five one's been my my bag all along, but you know, working in Atmos is definitely a different way of thinking about how to prep things. And they it did come about, Michael. I mean, this was a Hulu request. Um, you know, I think they're taking all their original programming in Atmos. Um, you know, I, I'm a big believer in one of the powers of Atmos is kind of the subtle stuff, and this isn't a big flashy, you know, sound show. It's a it's a lot of um, you know really protected dialogue and and kind of the part part point of the show is as it goes along is Elena and her family you know they're the outside world never really intrudes on these people they've kind of made their lives and it's this very safe thing and and there's a bunch of times where we go back into flashbacks or we do this where we really open up the soundscape and open up those things but. Um, there's a lot of subtlety that we were able to do in Atmos. And obviously with the music, I'd had so many nice splits. So we were really able to use the overheads for the orchestral stuff and for the ambience that they mm -hmm. delivered to us. And like I said, giving us, you know, these huge amount of splits on the music really helped us out there. And we didn't ever, I, I think once or twice, we'd really talked to the producers about what we were doing in Atmos, but they just really, um, it wasn't anything that anybody really noticed or was over the top or anything. And that's one, I mean, that's always been my, my um, philosophy is it shouldn't be something that's only going to be cool in Atmos and it's not going to be cool in 5.1 or, or stereo. And so, um, you know, I think that we just, we never made a big deal out of it. We never said, okay, this is the Atmos and this is not the Atmos or that. So I think it worked out really well. I think, I think it translated to all the formats really well. Something about this show, like you mentioned, it, it's a uh, really dialogue heavy and your production sound mixer, mixer uh, Mark Steinbeck, I would love to hear how uh, it was. W was all that done on set? He did an amazing job. And, and Mark can tell you, they were, um, he, you know, they shot a lot of stuff in these, these houses. Um, they ended up, the sets actually ended up were kind of very noisy, just a lot of air and stuff. But he mm -hmm. gave us, I mean, all the recordings were really great, great signal to noise ratio. And mm -hmm. kind of saying it that, I mean, the, the production, I think, um, you know, Mark and I were never trying to, oh, can I have an alt for this or that? Or, you know, we really, I'd say 99% of that was the stuff that, that was from the Avid Cuts. Mark didn't have to go find a lot of alts and stuff. One of the mm -hmm. things I love working with Relier is um, they didn't shoot a lot of ADR for this, but um, Liz Tigler, the showrunner, would be very particular about changing words and stuff. And Mark is fantastic about prepping <laughs> things. So that he'll actually go just, you know, cut the syllables in and do all that and doesn't even present it to me as ADR and dialogue. He'll just say, here's, here's something that'll have the ADR cut into it. And um, it, like I said, it was my first time working with Mark, but it was really as minimal as we could use with ADR, um, usually just only for 
plot changes. There were one or two scenes where we had some noise issues that we, we looped, but, um, I, again, I'd say we were 98, 99% production on the show. It was a beautiful um, experience just to hear those quiet moments. You're just really focused. There's not many other distractions. It, it was very patient um, in many ways with a lot of these scenes. I mean, the sound of the house, um, both the houses for both of these families, you said it kind of represented these bubbles. So what was your guys' experience of navigating the right tone for th these spaces? Well, for me, it was... Um again, it was something that I had to figure out on my own uh, because we didn't have any kind of direction of how they wanted to set, wanted it to sound. But they were in that house pretty much, you know, 75% of the time, either that house or um, Kerry Washington's house. So um, the backgrounds that I chose to use for um, Reese's house tended to have a lot of uh, just simple, simple, um, just airy, suburban, not n never put people in the background, like outside playing or anything. I wanted to keep everything sounding like it was within the house. Uh, put, we did put bird tracks in, you know, like, you know, with uh, what we, what, I don't know if there's an official name for it, but we in in my my world that we call them offstage BGs, which we'll put like a little bird here, or a little something over there, just for Jason to move to play around with. Um, but but the backgrounds were the thing that I I just kind of kept as minimal as possible because also too the dialogue and the writing was so great on that show, like you didn't want to have anything in the background to take away from from the dialogue. So um, so anyway, yeah, we did have a lot of tracks of different kinds of tones and ambiences and stuff, but I never went over the top with anything outside of what would keep the inside of the house sounding as isolated and within the family as possible. Um, and so far as like the tones, we kind of just also went off like what the emotion of the scene was like, especially, you know, um, like there's an air blower, for instance, in, in one of the episodes, um, that we made, um, we just kind of made it sound grating and awful, you know, like not awful, but, you know, just kind of have a little bit of a grating sound because it was a, it was a tension scene between Mia and uh, Carrie Washington's character. She, uh, yeah, they had a good a scene in there that was kind of, you know, it was kind of them getting together and, you know, kind of talking something out. So as they, you know, we got a little closer, we kind of just brought that sound on a little bit because they were starting to have a moment in everything. But there were just like little nuances that we threw in there just to kind of affect mood, but uh, especially with the flashback scenes. Uh, that all you know the dream sequences yeah some of these flashbacks in episode one the first one is this on the train flashback with Kerry washington and mia warren's uh character which it starts to present this other parallel story that starts to unveil itself as we get into this into the season to me i, I was really blown away by the impactfulness of it because flashback scenes can be interesting how they're perceived like this like hallucination they're disorienting What was your guys' approach? Did you guys have visuals locked when you saw it? Or how did you guys go through those? They weren't locked. 
Um, for me, it was that was the big stress for me because I, uh, I, um, I again, I got kind of thrown into this, and they didn't really have a like a direction. They were just like, "Come up with something," you know. And I'm like, "Uh oh." So uh, my initial my initial way of approaching it was um, because again, like you said, it was the very opening of the show, and we hadn't you know some of the episodes hadn't locked yet, but we needed to figure out what the backstory is, and um, somehow I had to figure out how to stitch that in, having only what what's when's it mark like it only happens like twenty minutes into the first show or something like that. Uh, so I had to I had to figure out how can I. How can I take that that section and foretell something that happened in later episodes, which I physically hadn't even seen yet? So, uh, so it started out. We just put in. Um, I kind of put in a basic, like just design of. Uh, oh, actually, we went through a couple phases. Now I think about it, we went through the first phase, which was completely different, uh, which you guys didn't hear where I went much more um, literal with the subway sound, like the subway sounds were very literal and it was almost like you'd see it in a horror movie or whatever. Uh, but they wanted to go in a different direction after they saw that. So I had to come up with a, the, the ethereal spirit voice kind of thing to kind of sell, um, you know, change the direction of what they wanted. And then at the same time kind of sell well, what's going to happen later in the show. So what I did is I came up with this voice thing where I took dialogue dailies from a different part of the show and stuck that, you know, uh, as a, like a subliminal, um, uh, trying to figure out what was in Carrie. Cause Carrie was the one that was having most of the flashbacks. So, um, or the, dream sequences. So I tried to get in her head. What is, what's going on in her head during this thing? And I was thinking, oh, well, it's obviously, you know, Reese's, which Witherspoon's character is, is, is the one that's, uh, giving her angst right now, pretty much. So I was like, I'm going to take some dialogue from later in the show and stick it in. And then Mark kind of moved it around and made it all nice and subtle and brought it down a little bit so that, um, so that we can't, you can't quite hear what they're saying, but you can tell that there's angst, for um, for what Carrie's character is is going through at that moment, just to give it another dimension. Um, but we have all kinds of stuff in there uh, that's just kind of trying to just get that emotion of the angst and the the trouble that she's got. So we've got I got a reverse bass sound in there that I recorded here, and uh, uh, we've got some kind of spirit voices that I recorded in the loop group, just kind of peppered in there. Um, and then, you know, some hard effects kind of stuff, just, uh, you know, ghostly, whatever. But I mean, really Jason, Jason and Mark, they, they were the ones that really made that thing come through. They were able to kind of pick through and find the right levels and just, you know, Mark put those voices all around the room, which sounded freaking awesome. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was quite the process, but again, it was very collaborative and, and, uh, it, it, you know, we, we ended up pulling it off. I think it originally kind of. As I remember it, we had some conversations about we didn't want it to be a red herring, right? I mean, you kind of mm -hmm. wanted to tell what she was actually thinking about and who that that guy was she kept seeing. But I, I think you ended up. I mean, I think what you ended up doing was so brilliant because it really was. It it wasn't the sound didn't necessarily end up being about what was we were seeing at all, but um, it really tied into the kind of final confrontation between the characters later down in the episodes and stuff. And it's yeah. It's really um, powerful. When you do have these scenes, how do you have consistency across uh, each of the episodes? 
Well, Annalie and I, I mean, we listened to each other's episodes, so we kind of knew where we were going. And so um, the first the first four episodes were a little more um, heavy as far as source music. And there's the thing with when they go to the prom and all that stuff in the, the high school. And so there were some things that were a little different, although episode five starts completely different with the flashback to Paris with um, uh so well, I just went back and listened to her episodes and she, it's this thing and we'd have conversations about it. So it was just about communicating. Um, I think that, you know, you, you, we were talking earlier about the dialogue and all that stuff. I mean, I think that there, when Anneli and I had a conversation about both doing the show, I mean, there's an intimacy to the show, right? And that's, you know, there's sometimes you mix a dialogue and you want it to be articulated and it's just, it's storytelling and it's plot driven and stuff. And this show, you hear everything that was captured were, and I say the little mouth ticks and the gaps and all that other stuff. So it was really, um, I mean, I remember the one conversation on the way and I had, it was just, let's stay out of the way of, you know, we just, with these actresses and actors in the show, everybody, Joshua and Reese and Carrie and, and, uh, Lexi and all this were so amazing that we just didn't want to get in the way. So I think that that, mm-hmm. when you, that you have that, I, it kind of tells you how to mix it. That sounds like a weird way, but you just, it's not hard to kind of stay on that path. If you, if you kind of come up with philosophy from the beginning. So something about this show is start. The first episode starts off with this house on fire and with no context understanding of who these characters are. The, I believe it's the police officer says, you know, there was an accelerant. There's, there were little fires everywhere. It's almost like you reveal the gun, but you never know when it's going to go off. And for me, as we build up through the last few episodes, especially, you know, seven and eight, I started to wonder, like, who was the person who lit the house on fire? And when we do get to that moment in the last episode, everything boils up and obviously it it leads to this house catching on fire. So how did you guys bookend the fire in episode eight was like really aggressive, incredibly just animalistic and very scary. Um, But how did you guys manage bookending the series with this fire? I think a lot. I mean, I'll I'll give Jason a lot of credit for that on the sound design Mm -hmm. thing. I think, you know, Mark had all these incredible effects and all this stuff and um, it's, it, it's interesting. Episode one starts and it is very aggressive and it's, you know, when they're pulling up and you see it and it's huge and then it kind of go, almost goes silent. And, um, in the last episode, it's, um, different. Uh, it's, uh, it's much more subtle. And I think it's just because of that journey you've gone through with the characters and, and you've gone through Bill's journey and all this. And I think it's, it's, it's no spoilers, but it's so interesting that, yeah, we see the same scene twice and, um, uh, you kind of, you kind of start to show with a, a big period towards the end. Um, but the payoff is so huge. Um, uh, and I think, you know, Jason's thing was he just didn't want to get in the way of it. It was just, we're, we're with the characters now. It's not about this 
Um, it's not about the spectacle of coming home and seeing your house on fire and all this other stuff, which I thought was really great, great way to handle it. So I give him a lot of credit for that. started the fire we didn't even play it i don't i mean mark can correct me if i'm wrong but i i don't I, I felt like we didn't mix it and prep it as powerfully in the first episode as we did in the final episode so when jason did the final episode he spent way more time on it and really made it like gave it like a third and fourth dimension because now from my point you know from my point of view creatively and, and i don't know if you guys felt the same way but it was like we didn't really know these people at, at first and we didn't know what their backstory was so it, so it was kind of like a two-dimensionally kind of sound or whatever. Just you know, not, I shouldn't say that, but you know, it was very, it wasn't played up as much as it was in the finale when you see the, that fight at the end and, and you know, with uh, uh, Reese and her daughter and the screaming in the house and the kids losing their, their stuff and, and burning the house down and everything. Um, that made that raging fire just, you just felt that, same power you felt in the earlier scenes with those those kids um but again like mark said we still kept you know everybody kept the room for the for the actors and everything but the rage of the fire was definitely way more intense at the end because of all of that and the music too i mean mark's mark's score there is just it's that brilliant uh br the drums and all that stuff they did over records and just i mean it's it's thunderous and it works and it's contrasted with um you know, Bill kind of coming across it. It's it's very. I mean, I think he's right. I think that's it's that's good writing, right? We know we know and care about these characters, and we've and Bill's character has taken a whole you know 180 in the show, um, and and at that point, uh, you know, he's kind of the arbiter of truth. So it's it's really really fun ending to the show. You know, after the fire happened in the last episode, I was looking at how many more minutes. It was like three or four minutes left. I'm like, what are they going to give us in the last few minutes of the show? Because it's you know, there's so much weird payoff, kind of closure of these individual stories. Um, it's like you, we were saying, this is not an over-the-top action flashy show, and that doesn't make it any lesser of an opportunity for amazing sound. You know, some of these notes that I had made, which I kept coming back to these music cues, like the, in the end of episode three at the baby's birthday with Peter Frampton, this Alanis Morissette track. It, it's interesting, uh, and especially Mark um, Ishman, I was picking up these elements of like the drums and his choice of like you're saying the percussion. It was all very tasteful. So when you say we only had a few four days or so per episode, 
when did you guys have a chance to understand what material you were going to have and where it was going to go? Because some of these cues, it felt like they were so locked into story and into picture. Were those locked when they came to you? Oh, yeah. I mean, again, Sharon, who is our music editor, was, I mean, so intimately involved. Sometimes on these broadcast shows, the music editors don't get as much of a chance to spend time on the scoring stage. She knew exactly what was going on and where it was. So she always, you know, and, and coming in kind of late was actually good because then I would just go put the music in the show. I'd go put the final music in. So it was just a lot of Sharon and I sitting there and she, and she just knew. She knew what Mark's intention was. And again, the mixes they gave me were so great. It really wasn't it wasn't difficult. I mean, it was probably some of the easiest score I've had to mix in a long, long, long time. Mm-hmm. Um, gave that to us. And um, yeah, I mean, that that last episode, and I mean, the, the Ingrid Michelson song at the end, that that's an original song that she wrote for it. And it's just, it, it the way it flows from the score and everything, I mean, it's so organic, um, just really powerful. So it was very easy because you had some of the most amazing people, like I said, you know, Issa and Mark and, uh, the music team was just incredible. Mm. So n- now the show had um, originally come out earlier this year. I guess the first initial one was March 18th and it wrapped out around April 22nd. So you guys had told me that, you know, started your product, your work in, in January and you wrapped on March 22nd, which is right when COVID was happening, lockdown was happening. And so how many episodes did you have, were you working on right when you guys were, when uh, COVID happened? <laughs> We were on the very last episode, the day before final playback is that, well, it was the day before final playback and there was talk as to, cause that's when all the shutdown started and they're like, there was talk of what, are we just going to come in? Are we going to come in with a minimal crew? What are we going to do? And they just basically said, you know what? We're shutting down. You guys, I'm sure did great. And I believe that's what aired is, is what we mixed, right? Yeah, we did. We did did notes with Mandy, and and that was kind of it. And um, you know, it was it. It's nice uh, to be trusted that much, but it's also very nerve wracking, you know. But I think it's. Uh, I think we had known at that point, uh, you know, that that's where we were at. And I think Mark didn't we we fairly mixed in order fairly consistent. I think we were jumping. Yeah, around. we. One, I four, think three, we, two, or something, but we yeah we very consistently. I think we only had one one episode out of order. I think I think we did like four because four four was complicated, so maybe we went five four or something like that. One of them was really complicated because uh, I think oh maybe maybe it was episode six. I don't remember, but episode six was the one that didn't have any of the lead characters in it. Um, that was when they did that that big flashback episode. But uh, yeah, we did for the most part everything was in order, everything was cohesive, so we got it helped us to get a an idea of the flow of the story and uh that made it easier michael i mean we just you know everybody was super i think everybody else's minds were elsewhere uh to that week and so we just we kind of i mean i'll always remember that week (laughs) yeah (laughs) finishing episode eight but and it's such a strong episode um so yeah it was interesting what have you guys found? I mean, we're, we've entered this uh, really beautiful period where TV episodic shows and streaming in general, the bar has been raised. Um, just what is possible, what's expected. And now that obviously, like, there's no constraints, Dolby, you know, you can do Dolby Atmos. Um, and the expectation is that, you know, maybe there's less time and maybe there's less budget, but um, what you're capable of delivering can still reach the levels of what is done in future films. And I, I'm not sure if it's fair to even compare the two, but what is your perspective now, especially on this show? Uh, 
what you enjoy, what's challenging about working on streaming shows, because I think a lot of people, there's amazing opportunities to work on some beautiful projects um, on, on some of these, uh, you know, streaming channels. You know, Michael, to the point of budgets and time and stuff, I think the, the two things that have happened is we've seen a migration into the streaming world of a lot of people that have feature film experience. So they're used to a mix not being two days, but being four or five, or having time to do those things. And I think there's also a lot younger, uh, I say generation, not that I'm that old, but there's a lot of younger showrunners and producers and um, people, again, that are asking what's it going to take rather than this is what I had dictated by the network or this, that, or the other. And so I think that that's been super helpful, you know, when you get five or six days to mix a show instead of two or three. And I think that's, again, um, it's just been able to educate people and they hear things and they go, well, how long did carnival road take or how long does a game of thrones take or whatever and you go well this is this is what it takes yeah uh, and and it's uh and they go okay i mean it's in and then if you have the constraints of things then you have to say okay well this is what we can and can't do but yeah. i think in that i think it's a much younger um uh world that's coming up and and they're educating themselves i think that's the other thing too is these people have been a lot more educated about sound and atmos and mm-hmm. uh, all those things did either of you have uh, favorite scenes that or moments across this, the series? I'm so fond of the last, you know, six or seven minutes of episode eight. I, yes, it's, um, it, it's it's acting. It's it's Reese acting by not saying much of anything. It's yeah. Uh, it's really one of the you know the the vo that Mark uh, slaved over uh, with the different. <laughs> And it's just it, it's just a convergence, and it really is one of those. You know, I cry every time I see it. it. It's it's just unbelievably powerful. And there's again, it's not ultra complicated, but it's just um, that to me, that's still my favorite part of the show. That yeah, last episode was perfection in television, as far as I'm concerned. Like all aspects of it, both you know, our our part of it, the writing, the acting. It was just such a great hour of television it was so riveting and so awesome so cool well thank you guys both for spending a little time to, to chat about little fires everywhere uh like i said i was i went in to watch the show with little to no understanding or expectation and was just i think the first sitting it was like two three episodes straight through and i, I just you have to pace yourself because there's so much wonderful material and, and um I, I feel like it's a wonderful one of the takeaways i suppose of this quarantine is that we have a little more time i suppose to uh, spend watching some of these shows and i feel like for folks who haven't had chances to watch this show definitely check it out um both you guys did a phenomenal job and then your team also anyone else from the sound team that um you want to acknowledge oh yeah pretty much my whole team (laughs) (laughs) i have uh robert guastini on dialogue daisuke sawa on sound effects julie altos was my adr supervisor uh we've got uh damien smith was my foley artist one of my foley artists Foley editor uh uh, joe sabella uh was our foley walker his daughter jesse rappel was our other foley walker and uh, james howe our mixer i would thank uh, you know for most of jackie jones who kept everything together and really Mm -hmm. Producers getting us all going, and and you know, uh, like I said, Sharon Gersh, our music editor, and Jason Dots and Anna Lee Blank. I mean, did an amazing job. And I will say, Oscar Brandt, who was our uh, you know our mix tech. One of the things we didn't get to talk about is Atmos shows are really difficult to deliver. They have a mm-hmm. thousand times more material, and Alex just kept it going and and yeah, all that. So I give a big shout out to him. Fantastic. 
Well, thank you guys both so much, and uh, I look forward to seeing what's next from both of you. Once again, if you haven't checked out Little Fires Everywhere, check it out on Hulu. It's worth the time, and it's definitely a pleasure to talk with you both, so thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for inviting us. 